0: Hello there, and welcome back to the Field Study Podcast. The podcast that explores wild food and the great British countryside. I'm here in one of my favorite places in the world and that is my study and this is where the magic happens. This is where I edit all of the videos, all of the podcasts. Uh, I spend a lot of time in here every week uh, making stuff to put out to you guys. This is where I do lots of my reading and my research as well Um, and it really is a, a really calming, soothing space to me. It's up in the eaves of a part of the house and it has a window that looks out over my garden. And it's perfect on days like today, watching the rain fall um, on the vegetable beds and just making lists of jobs that I need to do. It feels calm and safe. I'm sort of enveloped by lots of my favourite books and books that I haven't read yet that could go on to be my favourite books. Um, And there's something comforting about that, I think. Uh, This is a a place where I do lots of my thinking um, as well as my editing. So it is one of those sort of sanctuaries of the mind, if you will. So I thought, what better place to start a second series of this podcast? Um, here it's surrounded by the authors, which I act as a conduit for. Um, all of these books that I read have informed my thinking. They have developed my knowledge base on all of the things that I teach about. Because at the end of the day, that is what this channel is all about to share my passion and fascination with all of these things um, to you in as many ways as I can. So in this week's podcast, I want to talk about toxic plants and especially some of the conversations that come up culturally around toxic plants and sort of the demonization of them, Um, because I've noticed certain areas of the internet are sort of dedicated to this sensationalistic idea of toxic plants um, and the demonization of them uh, which I find fascinating. So earlier on this year over on my YouTube channel I did a video that was outlining the differences between giant hogweed and common hogweed. So giant hogweed being the large sort of Himalayan phototoxic um, hogweed that was imported over to the UK by the Victorians in their gardens. It's a big, beautiful, stately thing. Gorgeous plant it is. But it causes third-degree burns. Um, If you get the the sap on your skin and then that is exposed to sunlight, it can cause very, very nasty burns. So I found a couple of specimens of this early on in the season. um, And I made a video about it because it was fascinating from a botanical point of view. Now what I wasn't expecting was the outcry afterwards of the amount of fear that there was around this sort of toxic plant. Um, And also some of the stories that came out, people were sending me all sorts of stories that they'd heard proliferated on the internet. Some of them just weren't true. um, And some of the amount of fear was um, disproportionate in my opinion, to the actual threat posed to us by that specific toxic plant. Now that isn't to minimise the effects, the life-changing effects sometimes um, that phototoxic plants like giant hogweed can have. The burns are serious. The burns are very serious. The burns are very, very serious. But the amount of fear that's there out in the zeitgeist about it at the moment, I think is disproportionate to the um, level of contact that we actually have with it as a plant. And also how easy it is to identify. It's one of those easily fixable dangers with just a little bit of knowledge. So every now and again, I glance at the Facebook community pages for our local area um, and bearing in mind that we don't have that many recorded specimens of giant hogweed down here. It is remarkable the amount of times that people will take a picture of uh, another plant like common hogweed, which is only lightly phototoxic to people with sensitive skin um, and will be genuinely scared. It just surprises me how readily people will back it up with the little information that they have. Um, So there was a number of cases earlier on this year where people were posting pictures of common hogweed. So Heraclium spondylium, which is a friendly plant. In my opinion, it is a great food source, excellent edible, and it's relatively easy to identify if you have gone away and you have learnt your APACA family, your carrot family. Um, So people were posting pictures of common hogweed and saying, my child has been playing in this, should I be worried? And I understand the worry because if they were to come into contact with giant hogweed, then the burns are very, very serious. I, again, am not minimizing that. But in the comments underneath it, people were telling stories about the level of phototoxicity of common hogweed um, as though it were giant hogweed. So obviously in the media, they'd just seen the word hogweed cottoned onto it and then the two species which are from two very different parts of the planet and work in very very different ways, uh, cousins as they are, um, they were sort of interlinked. So hogweed became this catch-all term for the two species and they were both equally as dangerous. And I feel that that narrative is dangerous in itself. Because if you close someone off to a plant that could be beneficial to them, or make them scared of something that grows so readily in our hedgerows, then they'll start to see the outside world as a threat. And this idea of threat from the outside world is something that I see pop up in so many different spheres. And it absolutely baffles me. I really don't understand it. It's something, in my opinion, that is proliferated by uh, culture, news media and has been for ages because stories of bad things sell better. We all know that. Um, But this idea of threat bleeds into things like the bushcraft community. There's a whole subset of people there that sort of go at the outdoor world as though it is one consistent threat, the idea of survival. And this survivalist mentality is beneficial in some instances, but those instances are very few and far between, especially here in the British Isles, where I live in the UK. We do not have any apex predators, for one. So the level of cautiousness that people go to when they're out wild camping and the level of fear that they allow their bodies and brains to generate is incongruous with the amount of threat that is actually out there. So in my opinion, this does two things. So it firstly divorces us from the landscape that we are in, that we are seeking a deeper connection to. It sets us apart from it. Um, and I think that limits the amount that you can get from an experience if you are fear led in your experience seeking. And you might get an adrenaline rush, and that can be enjoyable if you are out in a storm or you hear something spooky in the woods at night whilst wild camping. Um, But that level of enjoyment is finite. It lasts as long as the adrenaline is in your system, and the story, when you tell it over and over again, starts to lose its potency. But if you train your body and your brain to be calm when going out into the outdoor landscape to find a sense of calm seek it out and then drive everything you do through that level of calm if that makes any sense Um, then you will receive much more reward and you'll be able to pay attention to things in more detail and you'll be able to relax in the outdoor landscape which makes you a part of it And there are many ways that you can do this, but the first time that you sit in a forest and completely bleed into the surroundings and understand every movement of it is potentially one of the most beautiful things in the world. Um, Certainly changed my life. I guess it's the difference between going for like a 5k run and feeling that endorphin hit and going on a a pilgrimage and walking a long way and having that level of reflection. I think that might be the, the nearest way that I can describe it. Now if we take that idea and we bring it back to wild food and foraging, we can get an idea of why some people might be reluctant to start. So if you are constantly reading in the news or in every single piece of horror fiction um, or anything like that, that the outside world is there to harm us or is looking to harm us in some way, then when we go outside, there will be this predisposition to see the negative or to be afraid of it in some way. And this personification is a very dangerous thing when it comes to plants because the plants that exist in the world are not trying to kill you. Um, and that might be a news flash to some of you guys that read some of the more sensationalist newspapers, etc. But the plants in the outside world are just getting on with their day to day life. Now, some of the chemicals that we find toxic that do damage to our bodies are useful to the plant in another way. They haven't developed it in order to start eradicating human beings from the face of the planet. Um, they aren't triphids with that being said some of the chemicals that plants and fungi have evolved over their entire lineage have been to stop mammalian predators like us from eating them because it is disruptive to their life cycle so there are certain things over years and years of us browsing them or creatures like us browsing them have developed chemicals in order to deter us now the thing that we need to pay attention to here is the agency of the human brain in all of this. Now, a plant will develop a chemical to deter us, possibly I don't know hundreds of thousands of years ago um, maybe even further back than that a million years ago or maybe it was one of our mammalian ancestors so then what do we do as human beings we are highly adaptable and one of the ways that we are very very intelligent is culturally so we have developed a very complex uh, language system so we can turn around and be like that plant that matches this description did this to so and so do not touch that So then we take that, it gets um, assimilated into our culture. We tell and proliferate this thing around many, many people, and it keeps us safe on the whole. Um, because we then we don't touch that plant so this is an absolutely brilliant response if you are in a culture that still has everyday plant use and i mean going out and foraging for plants for different things um food clothing all of this sort of stuff it works in that context because you have a wider context that you can put that so-called toxic plant into it's not every plant Um, But I think in the 21st century, especially here in Western Europe, we have lost a lot of our plant knowledge um, through lack of use. So we no longer go and forage. Uh, for our plants in the wild, and they definitely don't have a reward pathway like, you know, making yourself some clothing out of nettle fibres, etc. So when people see these news stories, which are basically the same as someone turning around and saying, this is a plant that matches this description and it is toxic, don't touch that. um, People take that fear and then they are in danger of extrapolating it onto all of the plants that they do not know about and that is quite a lot of plants in this day and age so that's where the danger comes in and this saddens me this saddens me deeply because it means that um, a lot of people out there in fact the majority of people uh, their idea of the outside world is one of detachment of battle of conflict um, and I don't think that that is necessarily beneficial to anyone going out there. In fact, I know lots of people in the bushcraft community that still see it like that. No, ma- no matter how much time they spend outside, it is always um, an arena that is sort of combative, you know. Um, there's the whole idea of I survived the night, um, But you see that replicated in so many places, even though the thinking on it in the actual bushcraft sphere has changed. So I was listening to an interview with an instructor that takes children out into the Canadian wilderness on long distance canoe trips. So like two week canoe trips. And one of the first things that he does on the first day is they'll have a short day Um, They'll get out into the sort of more isolated areas. And the first thing that he'll tell them to do is make somewhere comfortable and have a nap, go to sleep. Now, this is a fascinating technique because it means the first challenge that he has set these people that might be predisposed to seeing the outside world as a threat is to get rid of that threat. Use your brain to switch that idea of threat off and go to sleep, find comfort in the isolated places. And I think that's something that we can do even here, even though we aren't that isolated, is the first thing you should do when you go out into the woods is to sit down and make peace with it, I think. Uh, Ray Mears is a a very um, (laughs) outspoken proponent of that. He says the first thing that he does when he enters into a woodland is sits down and is quiet. I actually struggle with that when I'm out filming sometimes. Um, Because I know it it looks very peaceful on the videos and stuff, but sometimes I have a very limited time frame in order to film the videos that I film. And that means that when I go out into the woods, I can't spend the amount of time that I'd like to sitting there and just letting everything regroup around me. Um, And that saddens me a bit because I can't put that sort of real sense of peace across Now, you might be thinking it's completely natural to be scared of toxic plants because at the end of the day, some of them do kill people. um, And that isn't to be minimized. Um, However, like I always say in my videos, armed with the knowledge about the plant, you can be confident to go out into the landscape and be safe. If you aren't sure on the exact identity of a plant, you should never eat it. And you should never feel that you're doing something macho or impressive. Um, if you do eat a plant that you aren't 100% sure on the confidence of. Because the outside world, uh, the wider landscape outside um, the confines of our own brains is completely devoid of ego. Nothing cares if you eat the wrong plant. Um, So it is literally, and it's a beautifully simplistic thing, the only thing keeping you safe is the amount of work that you have put into learning the plant and then your relationship with that plant afterwards. Those are the only two things that matter. Uh, And I think that that should be a comfort if you are apprehensive about going out there and foraging, if you are believing all of the stuff that you read on the internet about deaths and poisonings and things. Those are a very small minority of people that go out. Why? Because most people that go out foraging pay attention to that fear at first and do the prerequisite amount of research before even picking and consuming any plant. Now there's a direct reward pathway there. There is the amount of knowledge that you amass before going out and then there is the the picking of the edible plant. Now that is a very very satisfying thing And it is completely within your control. The more research you do, the better the outcome and the less the risk that you are going to poison yourself with the toxic plant. And I think as a wider discipline, it is very beneficial for us as a species to learn how to manage our own fear when outside. And it is something that is a hangover from our imagination. Now, the imagination is a brilliant thing. It can sort of help us pre-visualise tools and things and has probably been instrumental in our, our species and our development as a species. After all, it is one of the key components of any invention. However, it is not a useful tool wondering what if. What if that shadow behind the tree is a man wanting to kill me? What if it's a jaguar? What if there are big cats in the UK? Fear in itself is the the death of curiosity, in my opinion. Uh, So learning how to manage it is a good thing. One of the things that I teach lots of people is uh, walking at night without a torch. And it is remarkable how reliant people are on torches and illuminating the pathway in front of them uh, because of that fear. But the thing that a torch does is it narrows your vision to a tunnel. And when you are fixated on one single spot in front of you and you aren't using your peripheral vision, um, you start to see more darkness around it. And the, the level of what if sort of rises and you become reliant on this torch for your sense of security. Now, being fixated on a single point of light in front of you um, does two things, really. So it makes us see the world around it as darker. So there is that bit of light. And in contrast, everything else is really, really dark. So one of your best tools for sensing danger in an environment, which is our peripheral vision, is completely cut off. You can't really see much peripherally if you have a torch on. Um, And also this fixation on a single point, Point, physiologically raises stress hormones in the body uh, because what do we do if we think that we sense movement somewhere in the dark we will stare at it and try and see it so rather than our eyes moving around the scene uh, if they're fixated on one point if they're fixated on one point you will more likely feel fear and that fear response will happen within you so by eliminating the torch and relying on your peripheral vision um, and relying on your night vision, which we do actually have, but that's a subject for another another uh, podcast. But by eliminating that, then we can regulate the amount of stress hormone that's going on in our body. Now, the second thing that I think having a torch does is because you've got a pinpoint fixed light in front of you, um, when people get scared, they tend to look behind them consistently Um, and I've noticed it physiologically when out walking with people used to notice it a lot when I was a kid in the scouts if people get scared they will always look behind them Um, and that is them acting like prey So when you act like prey, it will drive up that fear response because the flight mechanism in us will be stimulated. Um, So you'll get all sorts of things flooding your bloodstream like adrenaline, amygdalin, all of these things that stay in your bloodstream for ages. And these chemicals are likely to affect our decision making. So when your body is in full flight response, you will be fixated on the danger and getting away from it. And you will miss out on all of the beautiful things happening around you. The world doesn't stop just because the sun goes down. So as a discipline, you can learn to limit fear by walking without a torch. So once you've developed that as a discipline, you can take it into other spheres of your outdoor life so take it camping with you go camping without a torch uh, without a fire just go camping just be there at nighttime and just bathe in the darkness it's a beautiful thing and you will learn a lot more than I can put in this podcast really but uh, it is a complete sensory immersion and you start to pay attention to each of your senses individually so you can navigate the landscape better So, your sight is diminished. You start to rely on sound, smell, texture, all of this stuff far more. And it happens naturally. It's sort of a a shock way of getting your body to, your brain to pay attention to those bodily things that are our senses. So, you can then take that into your foraging practice. Because one of the things I find very difficult about teaching foraging, especially on the internet, is you miss out on all of the information that you're getting from a real world source. And I know you can teach it relatively well with sort of physiological descriptions and things, but us as a multi-sensory animal um, remember things and can get a relationship with plants Uh, much faster if you show someone it in real life so if you go out walking at night pay attention to your senses keep doing that as a discipline and then take all of the things that you've learned through doing that as a discipline and pay attention to your senses more and take that into your foraging practice I think you'll get much more out of foraging for wild food uh, it's certainly one of the things that I enjoy most, even if I'm not picking to eat, even if I'm just out on a walk and nibbling stuff along the way, is taking the time to pay attention to my senses individually. If there's one thing that you can take from this rather rambly podcast is that uh, in the UK, the world outside isn't that much of a threat. The natural world is not there To kill you. Um, And a good thing to do is to limit fear. So my challenge to you this week is if the weather improves, uh, go out for a walk and have a little nap somewhere. Uh, Just the middle of the day, treat yourself. Or, you know, go out in the evening, see if you can sleep for 10, 15 minutes somewhere completely new um, that you might not have felt that safe before. Um, Just take yourself off, find a quiet corner uh, and then maybe go for a walk without a torch and see what that does Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Uh, If you're new to the podcast, uh, my name's Joseph. I'm a forager here on the Isle of Wight. And I make YouTube videos, instructional YouTube videos, over at Field Study. So you can find my channel by typing in Field Study. Um, And you'll be more than welcome. We talk about things like this. We talk about wild food, the wider landscape. And I try and convey some of the the more peaceful side of the, the landscape around us. So if you enjoyed this podcast, then head over there for more great things. Um, If you've got any questions, please leave them in the comments below or reach out to me on Instagram at fieldstudy underscore. um, And I will do my best to answer them in the next installment of the Field Study podcast. Until then, take care.